I was seven years old and a Sunday school teacher was faithful to do her job. She shared the gospel with her class and I responded to the good news of Jesus and God saved me. When I was about six or seven, about age five, Gwen King, our children's ministry director, shared the gospel. I was five years old and I was sitting around the dining room table with my family. I was a little girl in Sunday school when I heard the gospel and God saved me. Amen, church. I love those crisp testimonies of God's work. And I haven't told you lately, but I love you too. I'm so thankful for God placing me here as your pastor and pastoring among you and with you. And I love what God's doing in you. And I love what God's doing among us. Not only you, you saw these two baptized this morning, three were baptized at the 830 service. Um, just a, a number of things that Stan mentioned that are happening that just make it... Um, you just realize there's a pervasive joy that keeps blanketing us, and it's from the Holy Spirit and God's power. And I'm just glad to be under it, aren't you? I was uh, thinking about some other things coming up, just like our new church plant happening in a few weeks. I think any gospel church, they're launching, I think, uh, April 3rd. Uh, they'll be out of here probably the end of February, though, so we'll have a few free seats then. Uh, just, just thankful for what they're doing and God um, multiplying our body here. Uh, I didn't know this. I think there's some multiplication happening uh, in Florida and Arizona as well, but we didn't send them. We have some small groups that, for some reason, many of them snowbird together. This is kind of a new thing this year. So I want to say hello to some folks who need to get back in a hurry. Uh, they're in Arizona and Florida, but they, they kind of gather together and continue their small group even after watching the services. And so just some neat things happening across the board uh, in so many ways. And I want to encourage you to, and thank you for being a people committed to being ready to reproduce, just engaging in what God's doing here and as he crafts and creates a multiplying environment, disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, disciples who celebrate the gospel, grow in community and serve the mission every single week. I'm in for that. Are you? And I trust so. Well, let's take our Bibles and open to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you open that chapter, and as we prepare to look at this concept of rejoicing, which is the main word in the four verses we'll see in a moment. As we think about this word rejoicing, I want you to think with me for a moment about an opposite word, remorse. As in, for instance, buyer's remorse, we typically think of that in relation to a car, some of you are grinning right now because you remember the car you thought would be the last car you'd ever buy. It was exactly what you wanted and needed until a few payments in or a few months in, right? And then you say, what have I done? There's also hunter's remorse. I didn't know this till this week. There's an actual word for hunter's remorse. It's called ground shrinkage. It's when what you shot from the tree stand looks really big and then you get down to the ground and you realize that's not much of a deer at all. <laughs> now, hunter's remorse, right? Or, or if, you're, if you fish, you've experienced this. You cast and then you set the hook and you're sure it's, that's a five pounder. You reel it in and it gets a little closer. Okay, maybe three, but then in the boat, it's like a half. But you tell your friends it's seven. That's how that works, right? I think some of you have experienced relational remorse. 
you thought you met Mr. or Miss Wright until something occurred to let you know something was very wrong, and you're thinking today, I'm glad I didn't marry them. There's also experiential remorse. Have you ever seen a three-year-old at Christmas? Like, it's awesome until the presents are gone, right? Then what's, what's with this holiday, right? We still have that sometimes. Not about Christmas, but what trips or adventures we go on. We think it's going to be the, the hobby that we've been missing all our life or the, the experience we're going to do over and over again. I, I had this happen a couple of weeks ago. I, I went and shot and gutted and skinned and butchered my own hog. Not that I raised it, but I went to a farm with Stan. We got six hogs that day. We didn't keep all six. They were for other people too, but I kept one. And he told me before we went, he said, Todd, after you shoot it and after you gut it, the work really begins. I'm like, I'm up for work. We can do this, right? We go, we do this. And we're there till almost dark uh, processing and, and getting all the meat. So I got home. I'm like, nah, that was fun once. Yeah. I think I'm okay to just experience it that one time. I did like it, but do I want to go back and, and do this over and over? I, I think I was made to be a preacher, not a butcher. Are we good with that, right? You see, what I'm describing are moments when we think something's going to be a source of lasting joy. And then we discover that it's actually quite the opposite. There is no recurring rejoicing. It's just another flash in the pan, a party favor, if you will. And for various reasons, it fades almost as quick as it was found. You see, what we intuitively know is that the real test of joy is what it takes to extinguish it. And if we're only rejoicing when it's easy or comfortable or when something is shiny or new, that isn't joy. There's a word for that. It's called hype. It's all around you in the culture. You'll watch it today in a big game. It's called hype. But you see, true rejoicing doesn't die at the first sight of difficulty or the first perception of disappointment. True rejoicing isn't surface hype. It's deep soul work. And that's what God's chosen sojourners have. That's what the elect exiles have. True joy, what I call relentless rejoicing. You see, we don't just hype about God and his work of salvation and his mercy in the moment when it's cool or convenient or when it's in. We actually have, and I'll say this again, relentless joy when it comes to God's work. And we have this even when it's costly, difficult, inconvenient, and hard. And this is exactly what Peter says in verses 6 to 9 of his first chapter. So your Bibles are open there. Your journals are too. Let's put a finger on verse 6, can we? Take notes in your journal. Look with me in your Bible, mark in it. And incidentally, if you don't have a journal, please pick one up. They'll be available at the tables here in the gym area. Uh, all of those in a small group should have gotten one in your small group. If you're not in a small group, we ask you to pick one up. And here's some good news today. Uh, a lady in our church just voluntarily and beautifully uh, said to us, hey, whatever the journals cost for those not in a small group, I'll cover, the, I'll cover it. Isn't that beautiful? I just love that generosity. And so if you're not in a small group and have to pay $5 for your journal, 
We've had a beautiful lady who gave some, uh, who, who just generously said, I'll cover that cost. And so just pick up a journal. Everyone make sure you get one. Use it in our services, in your small group, in your devotionals. And so take notes today as we begin in verse 6, hearing about relentless rejoicing. Here's what Peter would say. Follow along with me as I read. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I mean, there's no question about the call here, is there? There's no, there's no doubt about what he's after. It's this call, it's this exhortation, it's this um, statement that there is a rejoicing going on because of God's work. In fact, look at your Bibles. Look at the opening of verse six. In this you, say at church with me, rejoice. Look at the end of verse eight. You believe in him and rejoice. So on both ends of this text, we have this word rejoice, and everything between it is all about rejoicing. In fact, I think what Peter does is he answers three questions at least. He answers what we're to do, when we're to do it, and why we're to do it. So let's just address the first one. It's pretty obvious. We've already said it multiple times. We are to rejoice. Notice the first four words here. In this you, say it church with me, rejoice. Now the question is, what are we rejoicing in? Because there's, there's a pronoun here, in this. What does this refer to? I think just a practical understanding of the first three verses here, three, four, and five, I should say the previous three verses, would tell us that what we're rejoicing in is God's work of salvation. In fact, let me show you how we arrive at that from a general practical point of view for the, for the casual student. You see in verse five, he mentions the word salvation and the word faith. Do you see that there? And then he says, in this you rejoice. Now go down to the end of verse nine. He mentions the word faith and salvation there as well. So I would draw a line in your Bible between those two mentions of the word faith, those two mentions of the word salvation. I would connect them to the word this because he's referring, generally speaking, to God's work of salvation access through faith. This is what we're rejoicing in. Now you'll notice that I said to you, this is a practical general understanding. It is, and it's accurate and it's true, but there's also a grammatical technical understanding. And I geek out on words. I like grammar. And so for all my grammarians out there, can we just kind of be nerdy for a moment? And can I show you in a technical sense what this refers to? Okay, I'm giving you the practical general understanding and it's accurate, it's true. But if you were to be looking at the, the sentences and the diagramming and the language of this, here's what this actually in a technical sense refers to. You should draw a line from the word this back up to the subject God in verse 3. Here's why. First of all, verse 6 is the beginning of the first secondary clause. The primary clause is in verse 3, which is, Blessed be God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. So the subject of that is God. That's the main primary clause of this entire paragraph. What's between verses three and six are simply embedded clauses, we call them. 
And so verse six begins the first secondary clause. So when he says in this, technically, grammatically, he's not referring to just the concept of salvation or faith because here's another grammarian moment. The, the word salvation is a feminine word and the, word, the pronoun this is a masculine. So technically, grammatically, they don't agree. So we have to ask ourselves, what then is this masculine pronoun this referring to? And it is the masculine pronoun God. And so this is why some of your translations, in fact, you have this in your lap probably right now. They actually say, in whom you rejoice. I mean, you maybe have a, a translation that says that's a very good translation, probably a better one grammatically speaking. And yet we would be foolish to think that, that Peter's not referring to all that God has done based on his mercy, which is called salvation and is accessed by faith. Are you with me? So I think we're practically generally very accurate to say this refers to all that God has done in saving us by his mercy, but in a very technical sense, he is actually referring to the subject of verse three, which is God. So just embrace both. We're kind of done with the grammar section. We're done with the nerdy moments, okay? I'm just thankful that, that Peter here says what we're rejoicing in, what's the basis and the root of our relentless joy is God's work of salvation, which says to me, we don't find lasting joy in anything horizontal. Full joy, relentless joy, eternal joy, the kind of joy that Christ spoke about that would be like rivers of water flowing up inside of someone as springs, you know, ongoing fashion. Th those, that kind of joy is vertical. It comes from God, and in the most precise textual manner, it comes from God in the gospel, the work of Jesus on our behalf. That's the truest source of joy known to man. My sense is that some of you have been looking for joy in all the wrong places. You've been scanning the horizon, the scenes. You're looking for joy horizontally. And you keep experiencing remorse. Not immediately, but after the fact, you're left again with saying, this isn't what I thought it would be. Now, that's horizontal joy. But when the gospel intersects our life, we get eternal, everlasting, vertical joy. This is what one of our college kids experienced this week. Been attending Campus Collective several friends and just hearing the gospel. And at some point this past week, sent word to the college crew, I think to Stan and said, hey, I believe the gospel, I trusted Christ, I'm in. Isn't that great news? He found the source of true, everlasting, eternal joy. So I wanna say to anyone here in this room, if you've been looking for joy in all the wrong places, you're thinking it's horizontal and you can stumble across it next, you're mistaken. I would encourage you, urge you, pastorally plead with you, lift your eyes to heaven, look upward, take a vertical gaze at God's work through Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrection from the grave and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and have eternal, everlasting joy. And yes, that can happen right where you're seated, right now. You don't have to wait till I'm done or wait to fill out a card or, or come to the front, or speak to someone afterwards. Right now in your chair, you can say, God, would you through Jesus save me by your grace? Would you, based on your mercy, give me the gift of salvation? 
And you'll have not only the gift of salvation, but the incredible joy that goes with it. And you can say, in this you rejoice that God has saved me. Now notice next what he says. He says that in this rejoice, and then he kind of describes when they do this. Now he's not saying that they only do this in this moment. He's saying that they do this in this moment as well as other moments. Look what he says. Verse 6 continues. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Interesting. When are they rejoicing in God's work of salvation on their behalf? According to this text, it's even in difficult times. Now, the point of this little phrase is not to explain the trials. He just uses the word various. So, at this point in Peter's letter, he's not going into great specificity about the trials. He does later, but right now he's kind of categorizing, hey, all kinds of difficult obstacles occur. And yet in those, you're rejoicing. And by the way, this is not an imperative. He's not saying you should rejoice in difficult times. He's actually making an observation. This is an indicative statement. He's saying to these elect exiles, you are rejoicing even in the middle of trials. It's a commendation of sorts. And so he's saying, it's amazing that salvation is so strong in your life that even in trials of all types, when you are grieving, you are still rejoicing. Now, just think of this church. Two opposite emotions that Peter is saying are held in the same set of hands. He's saying you're grieving, and yet you're rejoicing. I find great comfort in that. Do you? I think sometimes that, that is my life. And perhaps previously I would think I've got to get rid of one. Like I can't be really spiritual if I embrace the fact that I'm in, I'm in pain right now. I'm hurting. I, I'm grieving. I'm in a difficult situation. I'm in a trial and it's not easy. Sometimes I think, well, I've just got to pretend that doesn't exist and be happy. Be spiritually giddy. Peter says, away with that thought, that you can actually be rejoicing and grieving simultaneously. That's beyond my comprehension, but I'm thankful it's real. Now, I'll tell you, he says that because of God's saving work. So we are able to process what happens horizontally because we're focused properly vertically. That's what's going on here. But let's just be clear. We can hold both of these. We can rejoice even in difficult times. We can actually experience emotions of grieving while we experience the emotions of rejoicing. I'll talk more about this Tuesday on my Extra Point podcast. Please look to our uh, um, social media sites and check that out. We talk about emotions and how to have both of them in the same hands, okay? But here Peter says rejoicing isn't just happening when things are going well. In this, this case here, he's saying it's happening even when it's difficult. And so it shows me something, that, that difficulties and trials, obstacles, they're actually platforms to showcase the joy we have. They're opportunities. Um, and they don't extinguish our joy. They give us a chance to exhibit joy. I saw this play out in the last few months uh, through Joel and Sarah North. They may be in this service, I'm not sure. A few months ago, I think it was, little Emma Faye was born to them. 
Towards the very end of that delivery, they just encountered, encountered multiple obstacles. It was scary. MFA was born, and there were some uncertain hours and days. There's still some uncertainty. We've seen some miraculous things occur. But throughout these weeks and months, one thing I've noticed about Joel and Sarah is an indescribable, unexplainable joy. In the middle of what is no doubt difficult circumstances, I watched this in the Mercers as well, oh, a year or so ago at least, in the birth of little Grayson. Just Andrew and Kathy's um, deep, founded faith that affected their posture to have joy even in very difficult circumstances. And I've seen this in many of you here in this service. I know of your situations and some of the trials you're in, not all of them, but some of them. And I've watched you with resilience and joy hold on to your faith and be thankful for God's saving work in your life even in the middle of very difficult trials. When you hear about people like that, maybe you're wondering sometimes, how do they learn that? How does someone rejoice when things are difficult, when things don't go well? How do they hold on to their joy? Well, it's no doubt a work of the Spirit. The Bible says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So let's not discount that. But I also think what's in play here is there is a, uh, an end result of habits. There are certain traits you learn. And so when, when you tend to be thankful in all things, as we're told in Scripture, when you rejoice in everything, even the small things, it begins to affect the larger things. I've discovered that people will do in the large things what they've regularly practiced in the small things. And more than likely, I can tell you this about the Mercers and the Norths, they would just give thanks even in the littlest difficulty, the smallest obstacle. And when the floods really came, they were already, by God's power, practiced in learning how to keep rejoicing even when it's difficult. Can I share with you a humorous way I saw this last week? I was standing by the east doors for a bit, kind of catching our, our new parking team just do their work. And I watched some folks who were parking on the other side of the parking lot in that east plaza. You know, we're asking for a number of folks to park off-site in this time when we had two full services. And, and so about 45 to 50 of you are doing that. Thank you very much. So I was just watching some folks park behind the plaza. And instead of taking the long way around the building and coming on concrete into our parking lot, Here's seven or eight folks, men, women, even kids. It looked like maybe two or three families just traipsing over the snow. And last week, it was, a, it was kind of mounted. And then there was a big section of grass, all snow. So I was thinking, they're probably going ankle deep in snow. But when they showed up, no one asked for an expense form for reimbursement for their shoes. No one asked for a shoe shine. They didn't, you know, come in with a frown like, hey, thanks a lot. We parked off site. You're welcome. Like none of that. There, there's no expectation. It wasn't like they'd done some great thing. They just were smiling, ready to celebrate, grow and serve. They were like, hey, it's the least we could do. Now, I know that sounds like a simple thing, right? And I'm not saying that if you didn't park offsite, you're less than them. Don't hear that, okay? I'm just saying I watched a few people who took a shortcut and didn't think twice about it. They were glad to do that for the bigger picture. It's people like that who don't count even small things as an issue who when the big things come, they're used to rejoicing 
They're used to having joy. You're with me? And let's be frank, 99.9% of life is a lot bigger than traipsing over snow and parking off-site. Amen, church? And if we can't do the little things, how do you think we're gonna do the large things like Peter talks about here? So maybe as a way to practice getting ready for the big things, maybe you should park off-site. Maybe park nearest the snow. Maybe find the longest line in the grocery store. Find the little things that really aren't a big deal and give thanks for them. Rejoice in them because it will help you prepare for what is inevitably to come to all of us at some point. Difficult trials. Now, to remind you, Peter knew about this. I mean, not the traipsing in the snow part, okay? But he knew about difficulties and trials. He faced his own in the beginning of that early ministry in Jerusalem when he was arrested. He was scourged and beaten. He was told to stop preaching. I believe in Peter's mind when he wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he was thinking about what Jesus told him because he heard Jesus say much the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. It's recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here's just a section of that sermon that Peter probably heard as he traveled with Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What's the next word, church? Rejoice and then be what? Like that's counterintuitive. Who does that? The followers of Jesus. And we learn to do that in the small thing so that when the big thing comes, like what's mentioned in this verse, by God's power, we're continuing to rejoice and be glad in his merciful saving work. We let the vertical always anchor the horizontal. So Peter addresses the what, he addresses the when, and then I think he gets into the why in verses seven to nine. Why is it that we rejoice in God's saving work even when things are difficult? It's because God is doing something bigger than just that moment. You see, we often think God works in spite of our problems, but I'll say this again this week. God works in your problems. And what is he doing? Look at verses seven to nine. He's testing the genuineness of your faith. This is what trials do. They show that you're legit. They prove your faith. And then as your faith is proven, as it's perfected, it's found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So God's doing something in your difficult moments that will kind of pay off, so to speak, when Christ comes again. So this kind of gives us the, the, what we call the tenses of salvation. Has God saved us? Yes, fully in Christ at the cross. But is God saving us? Yes. And will God save us? Yes, he will bring everything he's doing to completion when Christ comes. And what he's doing now is he's continuing to form you into the image of his son so that when Christ comes, he can display you as a work of his grace for eternity. Ephesians chapter one. So he's doing that, yes, through difficulties, obstacles, various trials. He's working in your life in these things to prove your faith is legit, it's precious, so that when he comes again, you'll be a trophy of grace for his glory and honor and praise. That's what's going on. Now watch this church. That's why we rejoice. Because salvation is being worked in every tense and sense 
It's being guaranteed. It's being produced. It's going to be completed. All of these things are happening by God through Jesus and the Spirit. And so when a true believer understands that, then the horizontal takes its proper place and we see the vertical that's happening and we rejoice because God is doing something in us and through us that will only be completed and consummated when he comes again. And so that's why verses eight and nine begin to make even more sense. In light of what God's doing and will complete when he comes, then though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we don't now see him, we believe in him. And we say at church with me, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Knowing this, watch this, that will obtain the outcome of our faith, even the salvation of our souls. I mean, don't you hear words and phrases in here of longing, of loving, of looking? And this is what keeps us in the game, so to speak, currently and causes us to rejoice because we know God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us in every sense of the word. Our salvation is the root and anchor for all of our rejoicing. And he describes this rejoicing as inexpressible. That's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Like we're filled with some kind of rejoicing, but we can't really explain it. We can't express it, and yet we know we are. He says it's filled with glory. The word there is weight. And so it's heavy on us. God's glory weighs in. What he's doing in us and through us is just, it blankets us. So all of this becomes very pervasive, a permeating joy. And this is what gets us through the difficult moments and the various trials. But God isn't done with us. He hasn't forgotten you. He's working not just in spite of your problems. He's working in your problems to make you more like his son. And he's going to display you when Jesus comes as a trophy of his grace, knowing that no matter what comes our way, we will rejoice in God. As I thought about these closing verses, my mind went back to when Julie and I were engaged and dating, uh, we did that mostly in a long distance format. Now we dated in college for a few months uh, and then she realized I needed to grow up a lot so we broke up. Um, but then later we connected after I graduated and moved to Georgia, she moved back to Michigan. So we reconnected by God's grace and we began to date long distance. In fact, most of our dating and our engagement was long distance. There were about two months in which we arranged and worked it out to be able to be close to each other and have some time together face to face. But I'd say for the most part, it was a long distance relationship and engagement. But I'll tell you, as I thought about these last two verses, it it reminded me of those months that though you haven't seen him, you love him, though you don't see him now, you believe in him. I remember wanting to see Julie so badly, missing her. and, And so we'd have these nightly calls and they'd go for hours. And that was when you had to use a phone with a cord. And so you were stuck in the same place for hours. So I had a, I think a one bedroom apartment in uh, suburbs of Atlanta. I'd get the phone near the couch and just have a seat and talk for hours. I think she was either in the kitchen or her room. I remember getting shoe boxes of chocolate chip cookies on a regular basis. I love those cookies, and I would wait in anticipation for them. They'd have a little note on them, and 
actually came in a package through a thing called the mail. And so they would deliver them to my house, you know. <laughs> Some of us folks ask me why I'm so sold on Julie's cookies. She makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. It's not really because they taste great. They do. But the truth is, they, held, they hold great memories for me. I think about being single in Georgia and just couldn't wait to see what the mail held that day. And when it held a shoebox with all kind of little hearts on the outside and, man, I was a happy man, you know? <laughs> I just thought about Julie. I can't wait to see her. It will also involve letters. We exchanged letters, handwritten things in envelopes with a stamp. <laughs> you sign them. And here's what I was thinking this week about the oddity of this. We'd talk on the phone and I would say, hey, I wrote you a letter. I mailed it yesterday. Or she'd say that to me. The anticipation that would build in my heart, her heart, as we thought about, I can't wait for that letter to arrive. It just made me want to see her more. These days, you know, if, you, if, you, if someone's not heard from you, if you've not heard from them, you kind of send a text, hey, did you get my email? Almost like out of frustration. But in those days, when, when she told me, hey, I wrote you a letter, I didn't feel frustrated. I was like filled with anticipation. I mean, I'll be honest with you, I'm feeling verses eight and nine this week and thinking about just how much Julie and I had to live this long distance relationship and engagement. And yet the little things that we did always pointed to like, there's a day coming. We're gonna see each other face to face. We're gonna tie the knot. December 30th, 1988, we're gonna be married. Hang in there, we'll get there. Now let's be frank. That illustration, it hardly does justice to what verses eight and nine talk about. It may remind me of that a bit, but my experience and yours perhaps may be like it, it pales in comparison to this kind of rejoicing. Church, this is rejoicing. That what God is doing in you will culminate when Christ comes and he'll display you forever as a trophy of his grace that your life will be to the praise of his glory and honor. And so whatever you're encountering, please rejoice because God is doing something in it, not just in spite of it. This is the kind of rejoicing that never quits. And it never quits because our salvation never quits. Listen, church, our joy is as unrelenting as our salvation is invincible. Church, let this be crystal clear. Unrelenting rejoicing is rejoicing that never quits because of a salvation that cannot be stopped. Yes, your joy is as deep as your salvation is sure. And how sure is your salvation? It's as sure as God. So can we read this together with joy in our hearts and rejoicing in our voices? Together, church, unrelenting rejoicing is rejoicing that never quits because of a salvation that can't be stopped. I want to close by making this applicationally plain. I want to make sure you understand that you can rejoice even in your grief. You can hold both of these things together. You can because they are rooted in God's salvation of you. You can hold two emotions simultaneously when they're held together by the merciful cords of God's saving work. Salvation must be at the base of all your rejoicing. 
And when it is, you will begin to experience relentless rejoicing. That's right, the kind of rejoicing that will see you through a difficult season of your marriage. When you're frustrated, irritated with your spouse and you wonder if perhaps your marriage will hold up. Your joy in that is tied to your joy in God's salvation. That job transfer that you weren't thinking about, that you really didn't want, but it now means a move away from the people you grew to love, the friends your kids have made, your joy in that situation is tied to your joy in God's salvation. The medical news you weren't expecting, the new treatment plan, the medications, everything about your schedule is now changing. You're even thinking about your, the end of your life, perhaps. Like, where did this come from? Your joy in that is tied to your joy in God's salvation. Your wayward college student who seems to have left his or her roots. Your heart hurts and it breaks. It's not how you raise them. You're wondering when the seeds are going to sprout. Your joy in that situation is tied to your joy in God's salvation. The 24-7 endless days and nights of a mom with three toddlers. <laughs> your joy in that situation is tied to your joy in God's salvation. Your sudden family tension with your parents. Maybe the sudden crisis that's caused you and your siblings to suddenly not speak to each other. Or maybe it's to siblings who are still at home, those elementary kids, those teenagers, and some are in, going through puberty and some are, and your house is just an emotional volcano. Your joy in that situation is tied to your joy in God's salvation. The death of a spouse, the loss of a parent, your rejection by a friend, the reality of too much month at the end of your budget. Name your situation. Put your dot on the spectrum of various trials. Your joy in that is directly tied to your joy in God's salvation. Because that's what makes it relentless, his invincible salvation. Church, God's salvation sources our joyful sustenance. And because his salvation is unstoppable and invincible, our joy is relentless and undying. Church, it never quits. May the church forever sing and shout hallelujah for God's saving work. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.